0: This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Grips. For comfort, durability, and grip diameter options, Renthal Street has a grip for everyone.
1: What a weekend in Qatar. On today's Paddock Pass podcast presented by Randthall Street we're going to break down the Qatar Grand Prix, a world championship that's been won, a world championship that looks like it's almost been won, a new winner in the MotoGP Premier class and we've also sat down with Fabio Quattararo to hear what the Yamaha man has to say. Adam Wheeler I'm going to kick it off to you straight away because you were the man chatting to Fabio and it was a really interesting interview. It was about Fabio as a person much more so than Fabio as a rider.
2: Thanks, Steve. I'm still not going to pay you any extra out of my allocation from the Paddock Pass podcast for the nice words. But uh, yeah, it was just, you know, quite a personal chat about his sort of um, upbringing in in this world. I mean, he's still a young rider, a young athlete, you could say, despite being a world champion already. And instead of kind of recycling the whole strife with Yamaha, uh, the goal was really just to tap into a little bit of his technique and his approach to MotoGP. So um, yeah, that'll be coming up later in the show. I hope people like it.
1: Yeah, I particularly like the bit whenever he talks about being a bratty little kid. Anytime there was anything to be won, that's always good. So it also segues nicely to our bratty little kid, Neil Morrison. You're back in the <laughs> land of the living after a couple of months on living out of a suitcase.
3: Exactly. Yeah, I'm coming to you live from my apartment in, uh, in Barcelona. And by golly, it feels good to have packed my suitcase away. Uh, I can't tell you just how good it feels. Six weeks on the road. Yeah, being back home has never felt so good.
1: Obviously enough, Dave. You've been at home for the last few rounds, but you're getting ready to go to Valencia and get back to the paddock for the last race. But probably more exciting for you, the first test of 2024 as well.
0: Uh absolutely. Um, the I mean, uh, to be honest, I'm not all that excited about the final race. I just want it to be done. Uh, I'm been looking forward to finding out who ends up uh, being champion because I think that is going to be properly exciting. But the test, yeah, I mean, oh yes, aside from a
3: small matter of the champion being decided, you know. It's not that much to be decided It's not that much to get excited about.
0: There's a champion every year, Neil. There's a champion every. Someone wins the title
2: every year. It's not that much of a big deal. But Steve, you pointed out the logistics. I think in Neil's case, never has a man so tall traveled for so long with a suitcase so small. I would like to know how you did it, Neil. Were you washing <laughs> your clothes every two to three days?
3: I mean, a twenty-five kilo suitcase is a fairly substantial size. I would say, Ad.
2: <laughs> so it wasn't your usual little, uh, european runaround then uh, which you know looks fairly cute when you're pushing it through the airport
3: i mean there's a difference between going somewhere for five days and uh you know i don't need to bring all my makeup and hair dryers like you to a, a simple four-day uh, <laughs> retreat
2: uh touche but there you know there is a bit of a story about your jacket though right my jacket yeah didn't you recover it uh one year later after leaving it in a hotel in qatar uh
3: yeah yeah i did I left it in Qatar last year and I picked it up this year. It's not that exciting a story, but...
2: Um, oh, it's a man who has a wardrobe around the world. I like it.
0: Yeah, th- it's actually really smart because it does save on your uh, save on your luggage allowance. And also, did they wash it for didn't. you while it
3: was gone? They, they, they offered to send it, but Scandalous. it was like 200 euros to send it to Europe. So I thought, well, I'm going to be in Qatar next year, so why not just pick it up if then? You left
2: your dirty cacks there this time as well.
3: Yeah, I'll pick them up <laughs> cleaned for uh, March next year. <laughs>
1: I have to say, Neil, sailors have a different girl in every port. You've got a different jacket at every circuit. It's a good plan. You know, eventually it's (laughs) going to come back to you. Let's uh, get moving on to the Qatar Grand Prix then, guys. Neil, I'm going to come to you at the start, your rating for this race. What did you think of it?
3: Yeah, it was... It was a good weekend wasn't it? There was lots of drama. Model 3 was interesting. Model GP was interesting even if it was slightly disappointed for reasons we'll come on to. Um the reasons why uh you know the result was kind of the way it was were kind of difficult to stomach I guess in in this late stage of the year but I'll say uh, an 8 because there was drama on Saturday lots of drama on Sunday. And um yeah, on Sunday I also knew I was one day away from coming home. <laughs>
1: Yeah, always enough to motivate anyone really. And uh, Adam, obviously you were in Qatar as well. What was your thoughts on the race?
2: Uh, Steve, I've got to agree with pretty much everything Neil says, uh, both for the reasons and the score. I'm going to go for an eight as well. I was really impressed with how Qatar had remodeled their facilities, the whole infrastructure. There seemed to be more public there than there was usually. Uh, When you came out of the media centre and you're walking around this sort of environment, I mean, it was a real kind of cutting edge feel the way that sort of leds have been imposed everywhere uh the use of the lighting the cell itself is a, is obviously a unique spectacle on the MotoGP calendar i just you know it's it is something special and i like this grand prix it is some um, a little weird of course it has very little in the way of atmosphere and i do wish the track could have equaled things a little bit more uh but you know it was was a cool grand prix
1: Dave, very little in the way of atmosphere. And uh, that brings me back to when we first met in Qatar back in 2012. And, uh, you know, it's a very different place now than it was back then. But what was your thoughts on the race?
0: Um, I will give it a seven, I think. Um, For the same reason, I mean... uh, both Ad and Neil have made very much the same sort of points as, uh, as I would make. It was There was a lot of tension. There was, there was a lot of drama. Um, it was interesting. Uh, obviously, the facilities at the Qatar circuit are fantastic, um, which is entirely down to F1 and has nothing to do with MotoGP, sadly um uh also the i mean like we'll come on to this in a moment but the, the, the track the fact that it was new asphalt that also created all sorts of problems all sorts of drama um uh, and all sorts of uh interest so uh yeah i mean even moto two race was was sort of interesting for for a bit as well there was some there was some stuff going on so not i bad.
1: am shocked at this dave you've said on twitter that you watched the moto three race now you're telling us on the podcast you watched the moto two race you must have sat down and actually watched all three races for the first time, and I, I actually wouldn't know the last time you did that.
0: The last, well, basically the last time that they were at a civilized hour and not um, at, um, uh, well, yes, not a good time for me o'clock in Yeah, London. well,
1: we're back into Valencia at least, so it, it'll be decent times for you, but you'll have to be up good and early to get to the track on time. Neil. Let's uh, go to our moments of the weekend. What was what was the one that stood out to you?
3: Well, it was a weekend with lots of moments, Steve, but I'm going to choose uh, two moments in the, the sprint race when it was basically the two championship challengers going head-to-head. We saw a pretty spicy move from uh, Jorge Martín on Pekka banyaya going into the first turn uh, where he just eased them out wide. And then he made a bit of a mess of his first lap, found himself back behind Banyaya, And I think it was on the second lap when he made another pretty spicy little move down into turn 10 um, where he just kind of ran the, the, the his fellow Ducati man just a little bit wide and uh, off the racing line and it was um, it was fantastic at that moment Martin was just uh, kind of shoulders puffed out and in swashbuckling form and banyai was completely powerless to to, to to react um and you know there's been quite a few times this year where on Saturday you think my God this is only going one way and then a day later, the narrative completely changes and it uh, basically turns 180. So um, yeah, but I thought there were two, two great moves from Martin and uh, even spicier given what was at stake.
1: Yeah. And obviously at that time, like you said, Neil, it always looks like the momentum's going one way or the other, but at that time, Adam, you did have to think Jorge Martin, he's our favorite now to win the world championship. It almost looked like after the sprint race.
2: Yeah. That sort of is connected to my moment, Steve, uh, which took place right after the race on Sunday. Because um, as Neil pointed out, Jorge Martin went through sort of a whole spectrum of emotions. Actually, in his media debrief after the Grand Prix on Sunday, I sort of asked him about this. And he said it was like a relationship in 40 minutes. There was all sorts. There was anger, frustration, joy. Uh, He said at one point he was actually laughing, um, you know, because of the ridiculousness uh, of the situation with his rear tire. And as we saw throughout the race, I mean, he was shaking his head. He was making all sorts of gestures. I think Mar- Marquez said he was following him and he could see that he just clearly wasn't able to sort of use traction out of the corners on the bike. You know, something had been such a strong point for him on Saturday. But anyway, he comes into the pit lane and the the team immediately, the Pramac team, closed the garage. I mean, that was a pretty forceful gesture of, don't bother us. We we need to sort of uh, digest what's just happened to us and the fact that the championship might be decided. And some uh, clever clogs inside the Dorner TV production um, managed to switch the cameras the rear-facing camera and suddenly uh, you had a spell of about 15 seconds where the rest of the Pramac Ducati's twigged saw on the screen that they were still being, you know, they were on the live TV broadcast and there was a moment of panic. In the media center, it kind of produced a bit of a roar of laughter and, uh, you know, they quickly went to resolve the situation. But you could see straight away that the Pramac pit box had emptied and uh, Martín had gone straight out the back of the garage to do some sort of debrief and and, be, and find some sort of reconciliation with the situation.
0: Uh, if you have a MotoGP.com subscription, then you can actually watch the whole thing from his onboard camera. So you actually see him pull in. You can watch the entire sequence of about... It takes them about four minutes and you actually see the moment where the mechanic goes, Oh! <laughs> <laughs> well, they do it. They're showing him. It's great. And then at a certain point, they're sort of like trying to figure out which camera it is. And then at some point, the last thing you see is a mechanic coming towards the camera with a screwdriver <laughs> and then the screw the screen glows blank. It's just superb. Highly recommend. I do
1: always recommend watching back the races on the onboards because you learn so much more from sitting there watching. Obviously, whenever you've got so many Ducatis at the front of the field on a, on a regular basis, it takes away a little bit from it. But you really do get to see the differences between different riders, how they approach things and the different bikes. David, what about you, though? What was your big moment of the weekend?
0: I mean, my big moment of the weekend was the moment where it nearly all went wrong. Where I mean, we'd already seen the championship turn on its head when Jorge Martín was having such a miserable time. Uh, Then we saw Fabio Di Di Gennet-Antonio put a just outstanding pass on... Uh, Pekka uh and then they got to the end of the straight, and Pecobagnaya got sucked into the slipstream of Pe- of uh, Fabio Di Gian Antonio, and you know nearly rammed into the back of him. Managed to miss, ran wide, lost a couple of seconds, and thought, "Well, that's it. I'll uh, uh, I'll just cruise around." But and it bent it his arrow. Was it, it, yeah, you <laughs> bent his arrow. But the fact that all of this happened. Uh, shows you how close it could. It, 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 we almost had the championship change again. So instead of um, uh, uh, instead of Pecco gaining fourteen uh, points, he nearly lost. Sort of a you know it, it could have been a very different. It's quite
3: championship. a nice little moment when they go just before the podium ceremony, where basically Dorna shows the three podium men standing together, watching highlights, rewatching or watching highlights of the race, uh, and um, that moment was shown and. Dj Antonio obviously didn't see at the time how close it was because he was looking ahead, and he just looked at Pekka and he was like, "Are you effing crazy? Like, what what the hell were you doing?" And I think that was pretty much the uh, the sentiments that everyone watching was feeling.
1: Yeah, I have to say, I thought it was one of those where you can see again just how much everyone's on the limit, even whenever they're trying to think about winning a world championship or whatever it is. And it's easy just to get sucked into breaking zone like that. Peko, you know, could have gone really wrong for him. As it was, it didn't. For me, my moment of the weekend was probably the best bit of trolling you'll see in MotoGP. GP, the mapping eight. I thought it was just it was mm-hmm. great stuff from from Grassini. So that was that was good fun to see. But um let's uh, let's move it on to our big big topic. Steve, was it really <laughs>
2: trolling? I, was it really trolling. I think um, as in Frankie Carcetti said that was a signal just to go for it. You know, I mean, I know there's implications and and innuendo there, but. There's lots
0: of ways of signaling something, but choosing Mapping 8 was very, very, very deliberate, especially when it's Ducati's fighting for the championship. Um, uh, For those who don't know, just, you know, Google Mapping 8 and Jorge Lorenzo and Andrea Dovicioso, and you'll learn all about it. But it was just masterful. It was super. Like, I fell for it as well, but um, uh, it was very, very funny. And afterwards. When he explained that it was just, you know, telling him, just go for it, then it made perfect sense. We're obviously
1: going to talk a little bit about Digi in a wee while, but the big news in MotoGP is obviously the World Championship. Neil, you've already said we're going down to the wire in Valencia. It's always good to see the last rounds of the season with the World Champion to be crowned. But this weekend, you know, there's been big factors that went into what's given a 21-point advantage to Peko.
3: Yes, there has indeed. Yeah, I mean... um, It it doesn't take um, a sort of a a brain scientist, a neurologist to work out that, um, you know, there's something seriously wrong with Jorge Martins' uh, setup on on the Sunday. Um, And, um, yeah, basically his performance um, was afterwards, he said, down to basically his his rear tire um, not being kind of up to it. Um, And there was quite a bit of... um, you know, quite a bit of, of backlash afterwards where he was just going all in on Michelin and saying that, uh, you know, uh, basically a tyre shouldn't be at fault for deciding the championship. He thought he was absolutely capable of winning the race on Sunday. Um, and it became pretty apparent from, I think, the the first moment of the race when he nearly high-sided it coming off the start line. He said, like, you know, the tyre the felt like a stone. That... Happens when the track's dirty, but the track wasn't dirty," he said. Or it happens when the, the tire has 30, 35 laps on it. It was a new tire. Um, so he said it became pretty clear almost immediately that um, he, was, uh, he was really lacking rear grip. And I mean, you just have to look at Martin's pace. He was doing mid one minute 53s for fun during the sprint that was kind of the race pace up at the front in, on, on the Sunday, and uh, I think it was after the 4th or 5th line, Martin could not buy a 53, he was in the 54s right the way through, and said he was, it felt like he was crashing at every corner, so um, yeah, crazy for this to have happened at this kind of like critical stage of the championship, especially Martin having a decent chance of maybe even overtaking Banyai in the championship, um, if he had won and, say, did you, had finished second. Um, yeah, but as I'm sure we're going to talk about, you know, Michelin might not exactly see it that way.
1: Yeah, David, it's one of those things that championships, especially over a 20 round season, 40 races with the sprints and the Grand Prixs, championships aren't won and lost in an instant. But at the end of the day, right now, it does look like the Michelin tyre for Jorge Martin is going to be the deciding factor in really making it very difficult for him to win the championship now
0: uh yeah i mean there's there's a phenomenon called recency bias which is that you think that the last thing that happened is what were is what really matters um and uh, obviously it isn't it's much longer than that as you say you know we've had 19 races we've had uh well 19 grand prix and 18 uh, sprint races that's a lot of racing there's a lot of things which have happened so you can't just say there were you know th- this this was What made the difference? It has a massive impact for sure because it really does mean that there's been, um, you know, Jorge Martin lost uh, a lot of points. Um, It was a strange weekend anyway because there were a lot of riders complaining about uh, about problems with the rear tire. Or Jorge Martin said, like on Friday, um, his uh, rear—you know—he was having terrible problems with the rear tire. Um, then it was perfect on Friday, on Saturday, and uh, useless on Sat on Sunday. Uh, Pekka Ben-Yaya said he had a bad tire on Friday, on Saturday during the sprint race. Franco Morbidelli had problems with tires. Uh, there were just problems all around. And what was really—I mean—it's easy to say. Michelin did something wrong. Um I think that is a little bit, I think it's much, much more complicated than that. Um, for a start, Michelin have no control over who gets which tyre. They're, you know, they're allotted by, uh, the, the, basically, they stick it up, uh, given to the, the stickers are given to URTA, and then URTA then uh, draw, I mean, they don't draw numbers out of a hat. They enter them in a spreadsheet and use, a, uh, uh, use an algorithm to, 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 to sort of hand them out. But um, uh, Michelin have no direct control over who gets what tyre.
2: They've spot on there because uh, Jorge Martin, you know, he basically is blaming a tyre for the championship, but I think he has like three DNFs. Uh, Peko Bagnaya has four in, in the main races this year. Uh, and Bagnaya was saying this in the press conference afterwards, you know, he doesn't feel it's been a great season because he's made mistakes. But, you know, if you look around the rest of the field, Brad Binder had a problem, I think, with the rear tyre on Saturday. Um, KTM were worried about that. And uh, in general, KTM was struggling at a track where they looked you know, very strong at 18 months previously. And then uh, in the main race, he said it was a front, you know, after 10 laps, he just couldn't deal with uh, the lack of grip on the front tire. So, and I think, you know, people can look at MotoGP and say, well, why is the control tire influencing the results to this degree? But then it's just part of, it's part of the aspect, it's part of the factors of of the series. And like Franco Morbidelli sort of told us on Sunday, there's nothing you can really do about it. There's no sort of regulation or rule Or some sort of quality control. You just have to deal with the situation the best that you have it, or deal or handle the the most of the package that you have on a particular given situation at a particular race. So, uh, unfortunately, it kind of highlights some of the fragility of the organization, I guess you could say, when it comes down to a a race tyre problem. But it's just uh, a part of MotoGP at the moment. Uh, I think there's also a
0: really big factor is the track as well, because it was new. It was very dirty. Pirelli had problems uh, with F1 there. I mean, in part during due to the curves, but also uh, in part due to the, the actual track surface, the track surface. Um, there was a lot of what they called macro roughness which means you know there was sort of there was big roughness on the track so it was using a lot of tire it was it was affecting the tires and if you actually look at the lap times they were astonishingly fast uh, they were a a, set, a whole second i think um, uh, uh, let's see. Luca Marie was one second faster uh, 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 for uh, his pole time. Was one second faster. And Aya Bastianini did a did a fifty two as the fastest on the raceland, last lap. Which he, I mean, the, 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 yeah, on the last lap, twenty two laps. Yeah, lap twenty two. He did it. He did a one fifty I think, uh, which is one point four seconds <laughs> yeah, faster. Yeah, and
3: I mean, um, I thought Bigneyel was quite interesting about this afterwards. He was saying maybe the sort of devastating speed of MotoGP races at the moment is kind of a bit of a factor in this because Sepang S- a week ago was 15 seconds faster than the 2022 race this race was 29 seconds faster than last year and I know we have a new track surface so obviously you should see a big jump in in, in the kind of race time going forward but as Dave just said for Bastianini to be, to be doing those kind of times right at the end of the race it is uh, it is pretty remarkable um you know if you looked at the you know, Pekka was complaining of uh, of a rear tire issue during the sprint. Um, and if you look at his times in that, he, it was a couple of tenths. It was maybe two, three, four tenths slower than his race time on the Sunday. So something was up. And, you know, I guess it is quite easy to always point the blame at the rear tire. Um, but, you know, it wasn't as if he was losing a massive amount of time on, on, on that sprint. Whereas Martin, I think if you look at his kind of average time from the sprint and compare it to Sunday, it was eight, nine tenths on average, slower. Um, and that is, a, that is a serious amount of time. And, you know, when you sort of listen to the, um, the the kind of the feeling that he was experiencing during the race, you would have to say that that, that, that is what is his fault. But we should also probably mention that Michelin, um, you know, Ad and I spoke to some people from Michelin on, on Sunday night um, and they said that they couldn't find anything that was really that strange uh, with Martin's rear tire. Um, They looked at his data. There was nothing strange or odd with the the kind of pressure. Um, The outside of the tyre looked in reasonable condition. It said, you know, other riders like Fabio Quattuaro, who finished, I think, seventh. His looked a lot worse, kind of rougher on the edge. Um, And they were adamant that the tyre had been been made in France recently, had been transported to Qatar in the kind of the right way. I think temperature controlled as well. Um, So they were going to be conducting some Pretty deep analysis, and you know we're recording this on on Tuesday after the race. They're they're probably doing some analysis right now, um, and and hopefully we'll hear a bit more on on um yeah yeah this weekend or maybe on Thursday at Valencia. But for sure, the the, the new track surface and the kind of ridiculous speeds were were possibly a factor also.
0: Just just to get to those ridiculous speeds, uh, someone pointed this out on my website that's um uh Taka, uh, Taka uh, he uh, finished 19th with uh, and his race time i think was 2 seconds faster than the race winning time last year so they were nearly 30 seconds faster than the, the than the race time last year yeah, it's insane. It's just that, it I mean, it is really, really ridiculously so much faster. That completely changes the the tyres. Everyone came to Qatar expecting to use the softs. They couldn't use the softs. They were having to use the hards. Um, I think there are so many different factors. Um, it's easy to point to the, the, uh, the, the finger at Michelin. It might even be right to point the finger at Michelin. Um, but it's just really difficult to really... If you want
2: another example, then I don't think we can describe Jack Miller's form as competitive throughout the weekend. But then he was kind of shaking his head at us saying, I'm a 10th off the lap record and I'm down in 16th. And you kind of you kind of forget that, you know, when you look at what's going on around the track. But Dave, I have a question for you. What is there a way to fix this? I mean, you know, we know Michelin need another year before they bring another front tire, but. I think you mentioned something about this on Twitter. Do Michelin accelerate? Can they accelerate that program, or do they just chuck the new front tire in next year and hope for the best? Is, you know, is there something that can maybe change the parameters of these these problems?
0: No, I mean the, the the front tire thing is separate because it's just about sort of like the heat that that goes into it. The the problem is is one of quality control and consistency. But the trouble is as the racing gets closer, as everything gets uh, faster, you know, it used to be that yeah as it gets faster but also as it gets um uh when you've got lots of people within sort of a couple of tenths then a few hundredths starts to make three or four different uh, positions on the grid Uh, whereas perhaps um, four years ago five years ago when it wasn't quite so close certainly 10 15 years ago when it wasn't as close you know a couple of 100s didn't make any difference at all so any kind of um, even small variation in quality control is magnified out massively. It, it's, it's really... I'm not sure that it's easy to, to, to fix. I think it's really, really complicated. But yeah, it is clear it would help all of MotoGP if Michelin could have another go at their quality control and try to improve it because it's really
1: important. Yeah, there's never an easy way to magic a solution out of anything. But... Adam it kind of brings us on to the next big talking point we have from the race and that's the form that we saw from Digia because he really has magiced it around over the last few rounds himself and his crew chief Frankie Carcetti they've been able to find a working window for that bike that really has allowed Digia to make a big step forward.
2: Yeah, forgive the poor research, D. but one rider, I can't remember who it was, I should have delved deeper into the notes, um, wanted to cite the situation around Digia, saying, well, you know, if you don't have a contract or if you get to a stage where you really have to ride for one, then that has to be a factor in performance. Um, maybe that is the case for some athletes. Uh, I think the turnaround with DJ, you know, by his own admission, just comes with a familiarity of MotoGP. I think we have to remind ourselves not everybody's going to be a Marquez or an Acosta. Some riders need a longer time to build up and, and get familiarity with it. And also you can reference Bagnaya's results. I mean, it's a similar kind of rate of development there. I think um, DJ Antonio has been unlucky with the situation around Marc Marquez. He's said this repeatedly But then he was also talking quite interestingly about um, Jorge Martin and the way that Martin is able to move himself around on the Ducati, the way he uses his weight and his positioning to really exploit the strengths of the motorcycle. And and the Italian said that's something that he's been learning to do. Uh, He's also had his own injury problems. I think he had a concussion at the start of the year, uh, maybe a shoulder problem. Neil, you might remember more than me um, when it comes to that. But you know, it's a shame he's in this position, but his podium in Phillip Island was superb. And now I'm just trying to work out whether this is confusing for fans or it's actually quite cool for fans that we've I think we have six or seven different winners now Eight. in Milla GP this year. Eight. Wow. OK. Um, you know, we have six Ducati winners, right? No, Neil, from the eight? Uh, ooh, uh, the only one missing is Marini um, and Alex, Alex Marquez. Marquez. Yeah. He, well, he has a sprint win, doesn't he? But he doesn't have a... So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, is that good or is it, you know, slightly weird? I don't know.
3: Well, yeah, I think, you know, you look at Digia and the, the situation that he finds himself in, and obviously he's benefited massively from Ducati's strength uh, towards the end of this year. Um, But he's also been a victim of it because, as you're Ceynard, uh, you know, he probably is round about where Pekka Banyaya was in his second MotoGP season. Uh, maybe a little bit behind it, but still starting to show some real impressive results uh, towards the end of his second season. Um, but the, he's on the best bike on the grid. Well, the the 20, the twenty, GP22, which is minorly different to the... It's so G- a championship-winning bike. It's a championship-winning bike, exactly. And it's, uh, aside from the GP23, it's the best bike on the grid. Um, and on that bike... With that package, you with that crew chief that he has, you're expected to be showing results a little faster than he has done. I mean, it's taken him a season and two thirds, more or less, to, to be able to kind of get to this level. Um, and the kind of harsh thing is in MotoGP, people judge you a lot quicker than that, um, especially if you're on a Ducati. So. Um, yeah, it's 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 kind of uh, it's quite crazy. I never thought we would be saying this about Fabio Dejan Antonio, um, but it was a brilliant performance all weekend. Second in the sprint, winning the race, the way he hunted banyaya down, uh, he just did it in such an assured way. Um, and um, yeah, I loved it that there was maybe a few doubts as to whether he would actually pass banyaya but he just was like, "Nah, I'm going for my first win. This is this is massive for me, and this might not present itself." Um, too often in the future if I'm not going to be in MotoGP next year, so he, he went for it and just one one quick thing, it's quite remarkable if you look at the last six rounds and basically just tot up the points of each rider in the last six rounds, Jorge Martinez scored 150, Pecco scored 145 then the third highest scoring rider is Digi with 91, that's more than Bizzetti, Binder, Quattararo, Marini, Bastianini, so it's a, it's a pretty remarkable late season run that he's put together here and I guess underlines that we should probably just be a little bit more patient with riders in uh, in MotoGP.
1: Well, it's one of those things I was actually just about to say that in the last six races, six rounds, it's only Sepang where Alex Marquez has been the better Grossini rider overall. But when the decisions were made for rider lineups, and how often is this the case? When the decisions are made, the right decision was made. It's just that Digi has suddenly found form that, he hadn't shown up until then, so you can't really blame grassini you can't blame Ducati if they've decided to look elsewhere. And then suddenly Digia finds that rich vein of form and everyone's got a little bit of egg on their face, but it's also where it wasn't quite there early enough for him.
0: And, well, there's the small matter of Mark Marquez as well. Um, I mean, normally Mark Marquez would be staying at Repsol Honda, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. Uh, but, you know, uh, Mark decided that he needed to leave and that Basically forced him out.
2: Well, you know, uh, Didier's won a race now. Mark hasn't. Why not just swap him back? <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> I, I do love the way he, he kind of uh, framed this weekend. that He had basically heard, I think, leaving Sepang on the Sunday night that the Repsol Honda seat wasn't going to be his. Um, it was going to Luca Marini. And he came home or he went back to Italy afterwards and he was really angry. And I think he said to his a couple of his close mates and his family, you know what, I'm just going to go to Qatar and win it. And he showed up on the Thursday and in his debrief, he said, you know what, I'm just I'm going to go out and try and win. And a few of us, I'm going <laughs> to be honest, looked at each other. And then afterwards we were like, Pfft, like, come on, did you? mate? Like, let's just. Bring it back a notch, and he did. He he went out there and and, you know was was absolutely determined to prove a point. And uh, the the kind of the way that he managed it all was was brilliant. And you know I think from what Frankie Carcetti was saying afterwards, his crew chief, that was almost exactly how they envisioned the race going. You know he carried out his strategy and his his plan to to absolute perfection. And when he had to push with the the mapping it. Um, dashboard message you know he was in a position to do that and uh, and, and he did it really well so yeah absolutely um, you know absolutely astounded really um, you know I, I, I don't think I've been this wrong in my judgement about a rider in, in quite some time and I'm usually quite wrong about my judgement probably about since,
1: since Bestia Neil or
2: oh, and Andrea
3: Migno <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah Andrea Migno definitely not letting you live down I'll Andrea Migno those
3: uh, other two claims to the cars come home Bestia i've never thought
2: of uh, yeah i i think we need to clip that part of the podcast and just like can we pin it somewhere you know maybe as sort of as part of the, the masthead <laughs> on the website dave but uh yeah going back to that debrief <laughs> on the thursday we were kind of scoffing it was like a mate you know how much it costs to have any alcohol in this country you, you know calm it down otherwise any kind of bonus you're going to get over the weekend for finishing the top 10 is going to be gone so it was um, it was a little, uh, yeah, unrealistic, but it turned out to be very prophetic. Um, and we're recording this, like Neil said, on the Tuesday. And it's interesting that Dorna have slotted Digi into the pre-race press conference for Valencia. So I do wonder, you know, if there is some kind of news that he's got to deliver. Realistically, the only slot left is VR46. But I think um, Jack Appleyard spoke with uh, Uccia um at some point over the weekend on the, the live feed. And uh, the, the message from VR46 is they didn't want to go. Um, they had respect for digia but they wanted to go more in the direction of a young rider from Moto2. So uh, it's hard to know what kind of avenue he can have, maybe to go down the Ducati test route.
3: Yeah, or also, I mean, it's clear that VR46 want to put Fermin Aldeguer in the spot that will be um, left vacant by Luca Marini. But all indications from Aldeguer's team and Luka Boscos girl in Qatar was that he wasn't going to let Aldegar leave because he's looking at a guy that can go and win the championship next year, which is pretty rare for the Bosca's girl, for Luka Boscos girl's team. Um, and Aldeguer now has this situation where Pramac Ducati are sniffing around him for 2025 because they obviously envision Jorge Martín leaving at the end of 2024, if he doesn't do so at the end of this year. Um, so... For Aldegere, it's not one of those cases that if he misses out on this Ducati seat, it's it's a disaster because there's another Ducati team willing to give him a full factory bike in 2025. And it is going to be interesting to see just how, how Luca Bosca Scurro plays this because it's quite a risky strategy keeping a rider against their will. Um, but at the same time, you can completely understand it because who's he going to put in Aldegere's seat that can win a Model 2 championship at this late stage when they're testing uh, in less than a week's time? For the first time for 2024.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it, the thing about Aldegair in the uh, going to Pramac is that. Uh, Ducati are creating a bit of a KTM situation for themselves, where they've got sort of thirty-seven riders for for basically four bikes, um, or or eight bikes. You know, there's just there's so many riders who look at that. We've talked about Tony Arbolino. Um, uh, Ducati looking at Tony Arbolino as well. Uh, you've got um, Marco Bezzecchi wanting a factory ride. This is why Luca Marini is leaving because you know, like Bezzecchi wants a factory ride, and there's and there's not a lot of room in
2: there. Also, the talks, you know, or the room- rumors that we've heard about MotoGP is there won't actually be eight Ducati bikes on the grid after 2024 so you know that's that's another situation as well and riders have to not only think well what bike do I want to be on or what team do I want to be in that you know that's also sort of something to deal with.
1: Yeah and uh, that's definitely going to be something that's going to be one of the big stories to keep an eye on over the winter but uh, one of the big stories this week Ad, was the bus stops that we saw on track and uh, we saw obviously the most high profile of them, Morbidelli and Aleish. And uh, this was one of those moments where the Red Mist came out and, uh, well, I think it's fair to say Aleish didn't cover himself in glory. Frankie, obviously, in the aftermath, he also left a a little bit of egg in his own
3: face. Sorry, sorry. I was going to come in, but actually it's better that you just could add. Sorry, Steve. Sorry, Ad.
2: Uh, Yes, Steve. I I think we were asking Brad Binder. I mean, Neil was asking a couple of riders on the Thursday, uh, you know, how are you coping with the the schedule, uh, the agenda, the traveling and everything? And the answers tend to vary a little bit. I mean, Maverick Bignalli said he was fed up with the traveling, uh, but Brad Binder was like, no, I love racing every weekend, as you'd expect to the South African to say. Uh, after Saturday, we were kind of asking the same question again because we had three different spats. I mean, we had uh, like Bastianini on track with uh, Iko Likawana, I think. And we had um, Polo Spargaro's running with Marco Bezecchi, which seemed much more kind of serious than it was because, uh, you know, Bezecchi turned up to the press room on Saturday, still in his leathers, said a couple of words in Italian looked at the kind of melee of media debris and think, you know, I thought, well, fuck that, I'm off. So didn't speak to anyone. Um, Paul said, didn't want to comment on the subject at all. Um, He had been batted by uh, Bezecchi, you know, numerous times um, on the practice start. So it all looked a bit kind of, you know, tempers were flaring. And then, of course, we have the the famous Alessio Spargaro running with Franco Morbidelli. And the interesting thing about that, you know, usually these things tend to be handbags and then things are made up, there's an apology and that's it. But then this thing is rolling on. Um Aspargaro then, of course, crashed in the race. And now he's looking very much a doubt for Valencia. Um, he said that Morbidelli's comments, which were along the lines of like, um, Alesh should be embarrassed. He has more episodes to be um, embarrassed about than to be, you know, positive achievements or something like that. And, you know, I wonder what his kids think. I mean, Alesh was talking in Spanish on Sunday and said that, you know, that was crossing a line. And um, you know, it, it was uh, Alesh also spoke to us and said that you know Morbidelli for the last year and a half has been you know going touring on the slower line. He's been pretty much a mobile chicane. So it's um, I, the effects of all this. You have to wonder. You could say that it's equivalent of like Alesh bringing the sport into disrepute. Uh, it's not a good image for GB. and he admitted that he stopped short of apologising, but then he did say that he was uh, he he was contrite for his actions for sure. And I just wondered, you know, is Alesh one of these guys that, you know, he's obviously very transparent, wears his heart on his sleeve, but he must know that every action on the track and almost in the pit box, because the cameras tend to follow him whenever he comes in, are going to be picked up and shown. I mean, there must be something in the back of your brain or subconscious that makes you want to check yourself or stop yourself because you, you're you wearing leathers and a helmet covered in stickers. You're representing these companies and these brands. In some cases, emoji be being paid a lot of money to do so. Everything that you do is is scrutinized. Maybe it's part of a, just a, a little bit of a strategy to keep people talking about you, to keep popping up in social media clips, because in that sense, it's, it's a success.
0: Uh, I don't think um, Aleish thinks that much about it. <laughs> I think he's just an extremely excitable gentleman who gets upset at the first sign of anything. I mean, like, basically... Um, Alash, whenever anything happens Alash is always very insightful but he's also extremely excitable and will uh, I mean literally whenever we're transcribing him you have to take out about sort of uh, about fifty percent of the adjectives because it's always super super exciting or super super dangerous or very very um or whatever he's just extremely um you know like he's he's always on the limiter that I think is the is the big thing I don't think he is actually thinking about um putting himself into into the limelight yeah
3: i think he's i think he's just extremely emotional um for what it's worth you know i, I think he's a he's a good guy he's generally speaking in, in the paddock he's uh, he's always one of the more interesting guys to speak to because of what dave said he's very emotional he always gives it completely straight he's very opinionated as well he's always interesting to speak to um, but there are times where he's a maybe a bit of a tit on the track. And, um, <laughs> you know, this was, I think he'll probably look back and think that he was a bit of a tit. Um, I mean, he was. Um, there's not really any excuse to be hitting Frank Morbidelli over the head, even if he has blocked you or he's, he's, he's pissed you off during, during the during the session, during the season. Um, and, you know, he copped a, a 10 grand penalty for it. So um, I, what I do find interesting is I spoke to Aleish. I interviewed him last year And obviously he was one of the main protagonists in the MotoGP Unlimited series that came out last year. And afterwards I kind of asked, one of the questions I asked in the interview was, you know, how did you feel being one of the protagonists in in the show? You know, did it, has it affected your life? You know, have you got a bit more recognition as being or whatever? And he said, you know what, actually I'm I'm kind of embarrassed by how I came across in that TV show because, uh, you know, I was too emotional. I wasn't speaking to my crew in a very nice way and I've tried to rein it in a little bit. Well... One year later.
1: (laughs) Well, not even one year later. It's, what, four rounds since India when he came back into the pit box and threw a massive hissy fit with his crew. You know, Aleish is a good rider, but what we see from him is the reason why he's a good rider, not a great rider. And it's why he's a rider that's fast enough to give himself the chance to win races, and he's ridden so well over the last... Seven years, really. From once he became that uh, forward forward Yamaha rider, then a factory Suzuki rider, he's been able to make massive steps forward, show how talented he is. But it's also where we've seen that that's as far as he can go. And then on the other side of the pit box, you've got Maverick, who's got all the talent in the world. But again, on Sunday, we saw another example of it. He had all the speed. Did he look like he was going to make his moves when he had to, to get himself into the podium? And this is where Aprilia kind of find themselves a little bit stuck. Aleish, though, with Franco was, like, when you talk to riders, they've all said the same thing. It was ludicrous. Frankie didn't do anything wrong. You know, it wasn't like with Lechona, where Lequona was slow and dangerous where he was on the racetrack. Morbidelli hadn't done anything. And, you know, almost to a man every rider I spoke to said that they just thought that Aleish was way over the top for what he did. Uh,
0: the moments to be slapping Franco Morbidelli around the head is um, uh, afterwards... On the way into the car park, where the FIM stewards can't see. Yeah, it
1: was a mosquito, I think, wasn't it, Neil? I think that. Yeah, that's the it was problem. probably a mosquito. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Well, I mean, it's notorious in uh, in, in Qatar for and mosquitoes. Also
3: just at the start of this segment, Steve, you said you know lots of incidents on track where riders were hitting each other. You want to see what it was like in the press room. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's all behind closed doors. We'll leave it there as well, Neil. Leave well enough alone. Yeah, we don't Adam... advocate
2: violence, Steve, on the podcast, just after Dave's comment. <laughs> sure everything everything can be solved with a nice, frothy, milky coffee.
0: Yeah, I'm not condoning violence. I'm just saying there are
1: better ways of doing it. Yeah, there's ways of doing it without getting caught, and that's always the key thing. Um, add. Obviously, we've got a Rent Street Sessions interview with Fabio Quattararo and uh, we're going to play that now. But just before we roll into that, it's 15 minutes with Fabio. Always good to be able to sit down with any world champion. But Fabio was really interested in this interview.
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh, like we said at the top of the show, it's a little bit more personal. Uh, the idea we grabbed him it was on Thursday in Qatar. and we're hoping to have a few more interviews as well in the bag just for people, especially on Patreon, um, you know, coming up over the, the next few weeks and then the run up to Christmas. I'm hoping to sit down with Freddie Spencer actually in Valencia. So that should be a cool one coming up.
1: Well, let's hear from Fabio. And when we come back, we'll have our winners and losers from the Qatar Grand Prix.
2: Fabio. Thanks for talking to us. Uh well, first of all, we're here at La Salle. What do you think to this place because the upgrades are pretty Im- I know it's been done for Formula 1, but it's still it's like coming to a different circuit, right?
4: Yeah, exactly. I mean, has been done for Formula 1, but actually right now we are here, so it was uh, was a good change for us and uh yeah, it's a total different paddock. I mean, before it was uh, purely the desert here and uh, now we are we are in a really proper paddock, so it feels really, really good.
2: I want to talk to you about some different subjects on the podcast because you've been telling us in the media, in debriefs all this time about how much you've been riding on the limit. You've been very clear on how the situation has been with Yamaha. So I'm sure you more than anybody else are crossing their fingers that things will improve for next year. But go a little bit back to the beginning because when you were coming up through you know, what is now Junior GP, and into Moto3, I mean, your style, the way you adapted to the motorcycle, is, a lot of people were talking about you. Where did that come from? Because if I cite, say, the MXGP world champion, Jorge Prado, his roots in motorcycling and racing came from trial and having that sensitivity with a throttle, I mean, it bore him in good stead because now he's an incredibly technical motocrosser. Where was kind of, where did the origins of your style come from?
4: The origin of, of my style, basically, I started when I was four years old. My dad was an old racer, not really in a world championship. He has made some, some, some few races in a European championship. But basically, it was my passion from the beginning. You know, I loved to be on a motorcycle. Uh, I was hyperactive when I was a kid. <laughs> I'm still, but uh, I mean, you know, was was the, the feeling of having this adrenaline on the bike. And uh, step by step, I, I think that my level went uh, went up and um, and I was fast. And, you know, um, if I play cards, I want to win. Whatever the game I am, I want to win. And this mentality is since I have five years old. And this is, I think, why I also uh, really wanted to be in motorcycle and all the championships I I was, I really wanted to be on the top. And I think... This was um, a step that was, was important for, for me. And I think this is why also I had this mentality of, of winning.
2: That mentality is quite strange, right? There's not many people who have that and have the commitment to reach the level that you have. Were some of your friends or even your family at the time thinking, hey, Fabio, calm down here. Eh? Don't take yes. us so serious. Yes.
4: Uh, when I was a kid, uh, my family let me win on the, on the cards uh, because... At the end, uh, it was pretty serious. I was crying. I was screaming. I was angry with everybody, and uh, this is why when we play cards or whatever, when I was a kid, uh, they always let me win because if not, I was it was a mess. So um, I think was the right mentality for for my sport. But when I was a kid, you know, I is is it was a little bit strange. But I think this is also a step of why I, I arrived to this level.
2: I mean, you're, v- you're known for being very likable now, but I'm sure when you were a kid, you must have been horrible.
4: No, I mean, uh, when it was outside of a game or or outside of something, I had to win. But even sometimes is just, if I see something before you, I was happy. Like if I, I see the yellow card before you, I win. But everything in life, I want to be the, the first. But uh, I was a really cool kid from... From the beginning, just when it was starting to be a game or something, I was in a in another mentality.
2: Did you see things earlier, quite young? I mean, you know, like with football players, they can see a pass usually before it's going to happen, or they see two to three passes building up. Did you see things in your sports as well? You know, do you have that mentality to almost plan ahead?
4: To really plan, I would say no. But uh, at the end, I start to understand that. Uh, I was going really fast when I was a kid uh, because when I was training, I was always training with people older than me with a faster bike, and I was always in front of them. And uh, this is something that, even if someone had a 600 and I had a 50cc, I wanted to be first. And this is what really made me step into pushing my limits, even if I didn't know. I mean, it was uh, just because I wanted to be the fastest. And uh, last time I watched some, some video when I was 8 years old and I I was impressed about myself when I was a kid, you know. And uh, this is something that I think makes me take a lot of experience. I will not say experience because at 8 years old you don't really take experience. But, um, you know, how much I was enjoying and pushing myself on the limit even if for me it was just a game, you know. And... Uh, and this was was super nice times.
2: Did you come close to staying on the dirt? Because obviously racing street on the asphalt is a bigger implication for the family with the costs, whereas motocross dirt bike is a bit more uh, humble. You yes, know?
4: yeah. So to be honest, ne- never I, I really made the step of I will race on motocross. Um I start motocross also pretty early, but just because my dad wanted to... um to make me ride whatever the bike was and i ride some some dirt bike of course i was much faster on the on the road um but you arrived one moment where my dad said okay uh i cannot pay anymore uh you are fast you can win maybe you will be in moto 3 moto 2 moto gp whatever but right now i have no money to to pay and at that moment one one sponsor arrived and uh I was in the Spanish championship in model three, and uh, I won on my first year. And from this moment, everybody wants me in the team. Uh, so this was a big relief for my for my family. Uh, you know, my dad is uh, is doing keys and doors, and my mom is a hairdresser. So uh, I don't come from a rich family, and um, this helps me a lot, especially for for them. Uh, and uh, and yeah, so was a really special moment when, when I won my first Spanish championship in, in Model
2: 3. And you moved to Spain when you were quite young. When you look back now, do you think actually good education and experience for me? I mean, you speak impeccably in three languages. You have multicultural friends from around the world even. I mean, it, it's a strange background, but also it must be a good one.
4: Yes, it's a good one. I mean, uh, we. I was moving to Spain when I was already seven, eight years old. Uh and actually in france was no championship was only five or six riders and was just exhibition um and when i was in spain was 50 riders on the go-kart uh track uh it has to be two races and the level was super super high and i think in everything when you play with people with a high level is where you really uh improve yourself as as a rider and um the experience i took when i was really uh in this championship was was really good and I think was a uh, well I'm sure was the right thing to do uh what we do to to Spain especially for the championship.
2: You built up experience and, and you developed but your natural philosophy for riding a motorcycle, is that something also you had to work on? Because some riders again to go back to motocross they like to ride a lot on bottom end, talk, things like that. Did you form a way, a feeling, you know, that you still have today?
4: Yes. Uh, my strong point always when I was uh, on mod, before I, I cannot really tell you because I did not have the data on the bike, but my stronger point is I have non-neutral moment on the bike, you know. When I release the brake, I have always an energy, you know, all the braking, or the throttle. I never really stay like, at the end of a braking, releasing the brake and have no throttle on. Basically, I always have all the brakes, all the, the throttle, and this is something in motorcycle that is really important, especially on, on road racing, and this is what uh, I will say is I have it from a long time.
2: Fabio, your growth in MotoGP happened when you were still so young. I mean, you were a teenager, you must have been learning who you are, who you could trust, who your friends were, your tastes. How kind of difficult was that? You're still a young guy. I mean, looking back, do you, do you ever think, you know, maybe I miss some partying or maybe I miss what my cousins or friends are doing? How do you feel about where you are in your career?
4: I mean, I sacrifice a lot of things uh, that right now still is is tough because when you move to Spain when you was 14, I would say, and and you don't see your friends. Basically, I live two years just with uh, my old manager uh, my trainer, and that's it. And I was private school. So this is what I did all day, was school in the morning, training, go back, school in the afternoon, training in the afternoon, home. That was basically what I did for two years. And not seeing my friends, my family, of course, uh, is difficult when you are from 14 to 16, 17. But it, I think I take a maturity that I will never have take uh, if I was I at home. But I think it, it worth it. But of course, then when you are in MotoGP, you win and you start to have a lot of friends. I mean, the people come when uh, when everything is good, and uh, there is just a few people that came when I was um, P25 or P20 in Moto2. This was a different story. But as soon as you win in um, in something, not just in motorcycle, but I mean in life, uh, this is something that you you start to have a lot of friends. But you have to realize which one is the real one and um i think i was pretty clever and my family and real friends was always close to me when when i need
2: so having a support group of course is really important when this
4: yes and also um, i always have the feet on the ground and this is something that is really natural from my my side and even sometimes you know i question to my question myself like i am humble, uh, do I do something bad or people see myself in a way that is not good. And I always take care about that because I come from, like I said, a normal family and, um, I had to build all what I did, you know, uh, it's not just, I arrived to MotoGP because my dad had money and this is something that the education I had from, from my parents was, uh, was really good.
2: Speaking of feet on the ground. From your social media, it seems you're quite obsessed with running. Uh, you know, <laughs> making time on a treadmill or running somewhere. Is that also like a, a mental thing for you? Is like a, you listen to music, you disconnect, you disappear somewhere else.
4: Yes. Uh, at the end, also I have one obsession with my my weight. Uh, I always see myself fat, but uh, <laughs> it's also I really love running. I mean, like you said, it's something that I I go outside. Uh, I put the music on. I'm alone, I can think about many things, you know, and uh, it's something that that really helped me and, uh, you know, sometimes, especially when, uh, you know, before to to sign with factory Yamaha, uh, I had other options also and, you know, that time was, wow, you go running, you want to go there, you want to go left, (laughs) you want to go right, you want to go left and at the end it's something that on running you are alone with the music and you can think really in this
2: I know you were telling Donna about your music taste, so we don't need to go there again, <laughs> but uh, you know, when uh, running led to one of your strange injuries this year, right? I mean, what, what happened there? Was it Did you catch your foot on something? Did you fall <laughs> over? What, what happened?
4: Yes, you know, in, uh, in Amsterdam is all over the floor is something uneven. Yes, yeah. and his bricks, nose, I don't know what's the name in English, and was like a small hole and I put my feet on it and just hit so hard my uh my toe into the um, into there and I broke my, my fingers, my my toe. And before to start the GP, the doctor said you will not ride. I say, Of course I will ride because asen is a really important race and uh and um I have to ride. They say okay but you will have to take surgery when you go back home. And I say okay. And uh, basically, uh, on Sunday, I also crashed. I injured the elbow, <laughs> and uh, I go straight to the to the hospital to to have my my surgery. But yeah, one of the the strangest I, I ever had.
2: So you're making Massimo and and Lin Jarvis sweat not only when you're doing motocross in off season, now when you're running as yeah, well.
4: Yeah, I mean, when I do some big crashes on motorcycle or whatever, I'm fine. Hopefully, always. But when I do some stupid stuff, I mean, just crashing on running and uh, I break one, one bone. So, you know, in life is always, always strange.
2: <laughs> Fabio, um, MotoGP fans know you for the spectacular way you ride a motorcycle, but then also off the track, you're you're very active on social media. It's good for young people, I think, young fans to see what you're wearing, what you're doing, whether you're kicking a football to Leo Messi or whatever. It's There's a really nice... Uh, revealing of yourself, but then that, that's also is it a little bit dangerous do you sometimes want to keep some things for yourself you don't want to show too much?
4: always I keep a lot of things uh, to myself I don't really really show the, my I would say my private life uh, I show a lot because um, you know I think also the the fans uh, wants to see not only what is on TV because basically uh, they know I ride a motorcycle they know, I I train a lot but they like to see also some some other part and of course I show small small things but I think it's uh, they they really like what uh, what's also in your I would say private life not not everything but you know a small part and I think they uh, they really love it so this is why also I'm I'm really active on media
2: when you see Mark doing like a Amazon series, is that something you'd like to do? Or do you think mm, maybe now not the right time or that's not really me?
4: It's not the right time. I mean, uh, of course, it uh, was a dream to win a world title, but uh, it's sad to say, but I won only one. Uh, Mark is a different story. He has won six in MotoGP. Um, I think you have to get another level of... Um, enough authority uh, because uh, I think to really make a series um, is you have to be a long time in in MotoGP or or whatever the sport it is and um, because right now I have a lot of things to say but I think you need to have much more to make a kind of of a series.
2: Also off the track a couple of years ago I went to buy my wife some trousers in a store in Barcelona (laughs) IKKS And they were wrapping up the trousers in this paper. And then your face was right on top of them. And I thought, even on like, my day off, I cannot escape MotoGP. There he is. I mean, you did like, I mean, it looked really cool. I mean, the modeling session and everything. Is that, uh, is that something that's also fun? Or again, you don't have so much time off now with 2021, 20, 22 Jeeps. It must be hard to squeeze stuff in.
4: Yes. So basically, it was a really nice um, project because it was a brand that my mom bought a lot to me when i was a kid uh, she loved that brand for 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 kids and uh, as soon as i tell her i will do the ambassador for men for this brand she was impressed <laughs> and uh, this was a really nice really nice story and really nice time of course uh, my first session i was not feeling super comfortable on on modeling but then i was uh, with um Famous also, also model, and she she really helped me to to be more. more it must fun. have made
2: a very hard job with professional models. Yeah,
4: <laughs> <laughs> but was uh, she was more old, older than me, and she really really teach me. And uh, at the end of the the days of of modeling, I was feeling much more comfortable and and less shy in front of of the camera because basically uh, here the cameras is when you are riding, but there is only uh for the pictures and everything so it was difficult stuff in the first hours but then i felt i felt good
2: listen fabio thank you ever so much for your time um media days coming to an end here in Qatar, so it's good to talk to you thank you thank you very much
1: big thanks to fabio for joining us on the podcast for that rent street sessions interview let's uh, move it on to our winners and losers neil who was your big winner from the qatar grand prix
3: a big winner, Steve, was uh, the winner of the Moto2 race, the guy that's won the last three Moto2 races and uh, finished on the podium in the last five occasions. I think Fermin Aldeguerri is pretty much the man of the moment. Um, I really didn't think there was a way for a rider to take the spotlight off Pedro Acosta in Moto2 in 2023, but Fermin is absolutely doing it. Um, Acosta came into this race a bit upset that Fermin had dominated, dominated him and the class so substantially, so um so impressively in Sepang. And um Acosta was telling apparently everyone in his box this is the weekend that it's going to change. Well we didn't see Pedro basically all weekend and Aldeguer once again um left everyone in his wake. So really impressive. And you know it's a kind of a win win situation for him. Stay in Moto two he's gonna be fighting for the championship next year. Go up to Moto GP, he's gonna be in a really good team with a really good bike. So um, yeah this guy has a, a very bright future.
1: Yeah, and he's only seven points behind Jake Dixon there as well for third in the championship. So that's going to be his target, obviously, in Valencia, but uh, it's going to be a home race for him as well. So he's going to be a man to watch there. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of Aldegar. I think from what we saw on CTV, we always knew he was going to be someone that could be something a little bit good, but I don't think anyone thought he was going to be like he is. Adam, what about you? Who was your big winner?
2: Uh, my winner from the weekend, Steve, was Honda in Moto3, uh, as we saw. Jamma Thank God Masiya you put signed... in Moto3
1: there, Ad, because yeah. Honda hasn't come close to being our big winner <laughs> at any stage this year.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, certainly not in Moto2. Uh, well, not for a few years now. Uh, yeah, Moto3, and you know, somewhat against the odds. I mean, Jama Masia, apart from a few flashes from other Honda riders has been leading the line there. The work he's been doing with the sports psychologist, uh, the change in his performance, especially from Catalonia onwards. It's been a really strong second half of the season. I mean, Yuma Sasaki, I think, has 11 podiums for the season. Masia has 10, but crucially, Masia's won four Grand Prix, which makes him the most successful rider in the class, along with David Alonso. But I think the Pira Mobility Group can be a little bit disappointed with the season, you know, in between the strength of the Husqvarna's, um, you know, Alonso really shining on the Gas Gas and then, you know, very capable riders you know, on the KTM RC4s. So I think Daniel Holgado at one point we would have said is going to drift pretty much to this title. And um, it was just a shame the Spaniards sort of challenge faltered. And Denis Anchu, of course, you never really know what he's going to do. But uh, yeah, it was, it was an entertaining, let's say, uh, last kind of... Um, I, I really thought the championship would go down to Valencia. So it was, uh, it was a shame that, you know, it kind of didn't. But then, you know, props to Macio and Honda for that win.
1: Yeah, I think fair, fair enough. I thought Macio was super impressive in that race again, as he has been all the way through this season.
3: But he cheated. He, it, he did it in a dirty way. It was, it was, it was wrong. He, he pushed Sasaki offline twice. How dare he? And then he said he was going to do it afterwards.
2: Robin's racing.
3: So, so, so no. So no one thought. No one thought he was. He was wrong.
2: I thought Fernandez.
3: Because a lot. Cause a lot of people think that uh, Massey and Leopard should be uh, hanged at the stake.
0: Yeah, but I mean people always think that. You know, this is basically the default setting for uh, uh for, for all fans is uh, for that that somebody needs to be strung up somewhere for something and it doesn't really matter who it is or what it's about as long as someone is getting executed, it's fine. Uh, which brings me to my winner for which uh, I mean my winner is definitely my, the Moto3 class because uh the Moto3 I mean obviously jama deserved the championship it's simple he has three wins and he has the same number of uh, of podiums as sasaki sasaki has 10 ads not 11 so they, they they're they both on equal uh, both on equal numbers uh, sasaki couldn't find a way to win uh, the race was uh, scrappy but it, i mean like people were complaining about it being dirty it looked exactly like the, the average bog standard moto 3 race to me it was a lot of Idiots all hooning into each other, trying to run each other off track, uh, and there was very little skill involved. The problem with uh, with Moto three is that it you can win basically basically on aggression. It it rewards aggression. You can't manage a race. It's much more difficult to manage a race. For me, the big winner is Moto three because hopefully someone will finally see that this is a stupid, crappy class, (laughs) and we need to get rid of it and replace it with something which will allow the rider to make more of a difference.
1: For me, Masia, uh, yeah, he runs Sasaki out wide. Guess what? That's part of racing. If Sasaki has the option to do the same thing, he doesn't make contact with him. He's trying to win his world championship. He wins from the front, does a great job. Now, Adrian Fernandez, on the other hand, is a different story because he does get involved in a title battle, but he's a guy that is trying to fight for his future. And he's also a guy that hasn't been at the front all that much. So why was Sasaki stuck with him? Sasaki was stuck with him because he made a few mistakes as well he was putting himself in the wrong place there was that moment into turn one where he tried to take the lead of the race and he ended up coming out from turn two down in fifth place and he put himself into the wrong places that left him vulnerable for those kind of attacks for me yeah I would have preferred not to see Adrian do what he did but you know you have to also win your battles on track and Sasaki didn't do that
3: yeah, I'll pretty much disagree with absolutely everything Dave said, but then, you know, that's another <laughs> podcast that we'll maybe save for the winter months. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you, Steve. I think the the Massey stuff, yes, yeah, on the edge. It's a little bit naughty, but these guys are racing for a championship. And Massey has been completely alone all year on a Honda up against a horde of KTMs. And I, now you can't say that Sasaki's benefited from that because the KTMs or Pure Mobility Group bikes have all been fighting against each other and taking massive points against or off one another. Um, However, you know, this was a rare occasion where Massey found himself in a lead group with another Honda that might be able to help him or affect the result in some way. So I don't think there was anything wrong with what Massey was doing. This is a world championship and he could have decided it here. It's understandable that he was going to try and rough it up. You see this in other types of sports, people using a slightly questionable means of, of, of trying to win. Um, that are just about within the rules, and this was within the rules because he only received a uh, a, a conduct warning after the second time that he ran Sasaki off wide or out wide. Um, Fernandez, I think that was dirty. That was naughty, and you know proves that he's just not a very likable person. Um, and the <laughs> Leopard team. Aren't really that likable either because they were all celebrating this and laughing about it in press conferences as if it was just the the kind of the funniest thing in the world. But then they just do not care. They 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 almost see themselves as uh, you know the bad guys in Moto three, and that's not a bad thing. We're always complaining about Moto GP riders being too nice to each other, not scared to kind of take risks. This is a good thing that this has happened because it was a bit of needle and a couple of people that were really not caring that the general public opinion was going to be a negative against them
2: yeah there was a, a lack of class and a lack of taste and i agree with neil's assessment on fernandez that that was a little bit over the line um i don't really agree with dave's comments but i love the spirit of them and i'm here all day if you want to carry on i think that you know that does deserve to be another podcast by itself
1: i think it could well be one of those ones for the winter and uh, we can look at a few other examples as well but uh, let's move on to are are losers of the weekend I'm going to just immediately say David's our loser because Dave (laughs) for a man that just refuses to watch Moto3 races when they're happening to admit that you sat down and watched all of it I'm just I'm disappointed in you in some ways Dave (laughs) just because there was a championship to be decided suddenly you take an interest in Moto3
0: no it was literally just because I happened to be awake at the time and I did see it through it tutting all the
1: way through well Dave who was your big loser from the weekend
0: I mean, my big loser has to be uh, Miguel Oliveira just because he has another crash. I mean, this time it's his own fault and it wasn't even a big thing. Uh, it was just one of those racing incidents. Um, Runs into the back of uh, Aleix Espagro falls off and fractures his shoulder blade. He just can't, well, I mean, I would say he can't get a break, but that's patently not true because he's managed to get lots and lots of breaks uh, all of it throughout the year, but all of them have involved bones, which is not a good thing.
1: Adam, what about you? Who was your loser?
2: I want to say a little bit, Juan Mir, um, another disappointing race. I mean, Mir is down in 22nd in the championship now. He's only picked up six points from the last five GPs. Uh, There was even some rumors that he's another one looking to get out of his HRC contract. Uh, His manager, Paco Sanchez, was there in Qatar. I mean, he might have been having talks about something completely unrelated and, you know, other business. But uh, it didn't stop the swirl of gossip that Juan is trying to, you know, find another ride or another situation for next year because uh, it's looking pretty dire for him aside from that um, i have to say digia because it's going to be remarkable that a MotoGP gp race winner and the guy who's finished on the podium is uh going to be potentially out of the series and out of a job so i hope that's not the case
3: neil what about you who was your big loser i mean this might sound like a bit of a stretch but i'm going to say all the manufacturers in model MotoGP- Bar Ducati because on Friday it looked like this was going to be a bit of a, a bit of a tough weekend for them. Um, we saw not just Jorge Martin having having lots of issues, but uh, all the Ducati riders were pretty much saying that they were pretty uncomfortable. I think aside from Peko. Um, they were struggling with front tire grinning. They were struggling to get their bikes dialed in, and then on Saturday we saw just a ludicrous. Another kind of ludicrous sign of domination: six Ducatis in the top six in qualifying. Um, you know, Martin winning the race comfortably. I think the the Ducatis occupied, well, yeah, the podium places in both the sprint and um, Sunday's race. And I think it was Maverick Vinales on Saturday who was just saying it's kind of tough to take sometimes because you go into a weekend, you have a good first day, and you think we're 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 here. We're, we've actually got them on the ropes, and uh, then they're able to pull all the data and work out just exactly what's going wrong, and then they come back the next day, and they're just so, so fast. Um And yeah, we mentioned it earlier, um, ridiculous, ridiculous race time. Um, You know, 29 seconds faster than last year. I know the track was resurfaced, but Jakadi are just, like, raising the bar consistently at the moment, the MotoGP, and while KTM, Aprilia, and to a lesser extent, Yamaha have showed signs in on particular occasions in recent weekends and recent months, uh, you know, this is just another example that it's, you know, Ducati are just miles ahead of everyone.
0: Yeah, and we're stuck with this until uh, we can get rid of, uh, or, yeah, we can radically reduce the aero and uh, drastically, you know, get rid of uh, ride-high devices. But that's not going to be till 27. Or unless
2: there's less Ducatis on the grid.
1: Yeah, unless there's a reduction in the Ducatis, it's going to change not an awful lot over the next week, while Adam. But uh, one thing that isn't going to change as well is our Paddock Notes show on Patreon. We actually left it open to everyone last time out in Qatar to give everyone a little bit of a feel for what we do with our Paddock Notes show. But for Valencia on Thursday, we'll obviously have our usual pre event build up where we'll. Talk straight from the rider debriefs to get everyone up to speed for Valencia. That'll be available on your normal podcast platforms. For the rest of the weekend, though, you'll have to sign up on patreon.com forward slash paddockpasspodcast for the Paddock Notes Show. We've also got uh, interviews Adam's already mentioned. Uh, we've got a few interviews up there. Colin Vier from Moto3. We sat down with Colin recently just to basically get his his life story, Adam. And again, that was another really interesting interview. And uh, I learned an awful lot from him. I didn't realize he was a decent footballer. I didn't realize... The family background in racing as well so good work on that one as well lad
2: yeah a couple more to come as well steve so uh yeah uh, join us up on join up on patreon and um you know keep enjoying the content throughout the winter
1: and on thursday like i said we'll be back with our panic notes show to get everyone ready for the valencia grand prix so check that out on thursday evening as it is big thanks to all of us to Renthall street and to everyone for listening